He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Glorious truth. All right. Are we ready? Here we go. Um, happy Thanksgiving. I hope it was, thank you. I hope it was a good week for you. Uh, feasting and uh, giving thanks. And my prayer today is that it will be a spiritual feast. Uh, while the passage is not directly aimed at giving thanks, uh, if we get the realities and if they sink deep into our minds and our hearts that we're going to look at today in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, it'll produce the deepest of gratitude and it'll put a song in our heart. Uh, before we get to Ephesians 2, I want to just set the stage with a quick principle from a story in Luke chapter 7. Uh, you don't have to turn there. You can if you want. I'll start paraphrasing the, the, the section that begins at verse 36. But the, the setting is this. There's a, a Pharisee, a religious leader, a religious guy named Simon. And Simon has invited Jesus to come over and eat. Well, there is, as the text says, a woman of the city, uh, an immoral woman, most likely a prostitute. And she hears of Jesus being at Simon, the religious guy's house. And so when she finds out, evidently she had had some sort of encounter with the ministry of Jesus, whether she was healed by him, delivered by him, or maybe just heard a teaching, she's encountered the grace, the mercy, the transforming power of the gospel of the kingdom, and there is an immense amount of gratitude in her heart towards Jesus. So as Jesus is reclining at the table, um, the way it worked in those days is you would lean on one arm and eat with the other, and then your legs would be pointed back away from the table. So this woman of the city, this sinner, she has easy access to Jesus' feet. And when she comes in, she falls at his feet in gratitude, in adoration, and she begins to wet his feet with her tears. And then she begins to take her hair and wipe his feet. Not only that, she's brought this expensive ointment and she breaks the flask and pours it all over. And it's this extravagant display of love and gratitude that we see. Well, the religious guy says, okay, if this Jesus was a prophet, he'd know what kind of lady this is and he wouldn't be having it. And Jesus, perceiving, bold and wise and loving as he always is, says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, say it. This is verse 41. He says, there was a money lender who had two debtors, and one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, he said, I suppose the one who he canceled the larger debt for. Jesus said, yep, you've judged rightly. He turned toward the woman, and while still speaking to Simon, he said, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Simon, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, 
but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And this is the phrase I want us to get here in the early going. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Bless you. Um, so there's two, story, there's two characters, right, that are juxtaposed. It's clear. There's, there's the, the immoral woman, and there's the religious guy. And he says, Simon, look, this immoral woman has been forgiven much, and so she loves much. And he says, but he that's been forgiven little loves little. And my simple question here is, what was Jesus' point? What was he trying to teach Simon? Was he telling this religious guy to say, hey, Simon, bad news. You don't have the potential to love me the way this woman does because you hadn't sinned enough. You haven't done enough sins or the big sins. And so you just don't have the potential in your heart yet to love me the way this woman does. It's ridiculous. Of course not. What is he saying? He's saying this woman, though her sins are many, she is broken over them. And she is throwing herself wholeheartedly on the compassion, the mercy, and the grace of God. And so when the message of my kingdom comes, she receives it with great joy. But you, in your man-made religion, and in your self-righteousness, and your preoccupation with your external behaviors, and you're comparing yourself to others and thinking of yourself pretty good while neglecting the inside condition of your heart, you don't realize your need for a savior. And therefore, your love for me is very little. The spiritual principle is clear that without seeing the greatness of our sin, we will not see the greatness of our savior. To say it another way, when we don't rightly understand our sin, we cannot rightly understand our need for a savior, the greatness of our savior and how glorious our Savior really is. And so that's the journey that we're on today as we go to Ephesians 2. My prayer and my goal is that we will see simply the greatness of our Savior, that we will behold Jesus today and we will be in awe of this gospel of the kingdom. But sometimes the way up is first the way down. And so I call it the slingshot of the gospel. Remember old school slingshot? You grab the rock and you pull it back. But you don't leave it here. You let it go and you let it soar. And so that's what the passage does today. It's going to sink us into our sin. Now Satan would love for us to stay there in that place of guilt, shame, condemnation. But that's not what the gospel does. The gospel tells us about the realities of our sin, but then it tells us about the far surpassing realities of our Savior. And so we let go of that rock and we're going to just soar into the grace of God. And so with me, turn to Ephesians 2 and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. Verses 1 through 3 are going to be the greatness of our sin, and verses 4 through 9, the greatness of our Savior. Let me pray for us. God, you're holy, and your word is so precious, and your truth is so glorious. And it's now my job 
to rightly articulate who you are. And it's our job collectively to have it renew our minds and revive our hearts. And God, we come to you and we say, what hope do we have if it's not by the power of your spirit? And so God, we ask you, Holy Spirit, come and put forward Christ today. Help us understand our sin, but help us understand your mercy, your grace, your love, and this wonderful gift that you've given us in Christ. God, be honored here. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I didn't know um, Mike, Pastor Mike was going to start in Ephesians 1 last week. But it, it was uh, pretty neat that when I said, David, David, Ephesians 2 is on my heart. And he said, oh, well, Mike's going to do Ephesians 1. So it works out. Um, and it'll flow nicely into what we're going to talk about today. And we'll make a little bit of reference back to some things that he commented on last week. But in verses 1 through 3, this is the sinking verses. It's heavy. It's, uh, it's not pretty. It's, uh, and in some ways it's hard to understand. So we want to first intellectually grasp what's there, but then I want to meditate on it for just a little bit. I want to stay there. I want us to see it and not just acknowledge that it's there, but let it sink into our hearts. Let us see the reality that God paints through the apostle Paul here in Ephesians 2. It says this, verses 1 through 3. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So man... What's the description put forward here? Dead in trespasses and sin, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the living in the passions of our flesh, indulging the desires of the body and the mind. Were the Ephesians this special breed of sinner that merited these words that the rest of us know nothing of? Obviously not. Verse 3 says, among whom we all once lived. So how do we understand these things then? Verse 1, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This deadness is a, a complete lack of spiritual life. Of course, physically, we're walking on earth, we're eating, we're drinking, we're interacting, we're working, but inside we're dead. When someone tells us as an unbeliever that God is worthy to be worshiped, we say, what? That, that in him life can be found and in him joy can be found. We say, what? That's ridiculous. We have no sensitivity. We have no eyes to see his glory. We have no ears to hear his voice. His commands are ridiculous, dated, foolish. We want nothing to do with them. We want to be the king of our lives. And it's in this state that we're dead. It says we're dead in our trespasses. A trespass is a false step. It's a violation of divine command. But it says we're also dead in our sins. These sins is any way we fall short of the holiness to which we're called to, to which we were created for. And so we have our trespasses and our sins. It's both our 
active and our passive rebellion against God. It's our sins of omission and commission. Now, I was one of those people that liked the immoral woman. I did a lot of bad stuff before I came to know the Lord. And so just from a basic understanding of what God said is right and wrong, I knew that when I finally came to know him as Savior, I had done a bunch of bad things. But then there were other things that, like, maybe didn't seem quite as bad. But as I started to realize the heart behind my actions, I started to come to grips with my depravity of heart. Let me give you an example. I cheated a lot in high school. (laughs) I cheated on quizzes. I cheated on tests, mostly in English class. I absolutely hated to read. Um, Hallelujah, I enjoy reading now. I especially enjoy reading the Bible. God changed that in me. But I absolutely hated to read. Now, I can tell you I cheated on tests, and you say, yeah, well, a lot of kids did. I mean, it's bad, but it's not, you know, whatever. We all, you know. We get by. Forget about it. But if I, if I take you on the, the journey into my heart as I began to look back on those kind of things, you, you'll see a different picture. You see, I was lazy, one. So the homework assignment was given, and I simply didn't want to do it. It's not like I had a medical emergency every single day of the week, right? I just didn't want to do it, so I was lazy. Yet, I still wanted the adulation of making a good grade. I wanted the prestige of being seen as a smart kid. So I still wanted to pass my test and actually do well and get an A in the class. There's this pride and this vanity. Now, not only is it lazy, not only is it proud, but then instead of loving the people around me and thinking, how can my life be of benefit to them? They were merely a means for me to get my grade. And so I looked for people that would help me cheat. Now, none of this is consciously happening. This is just the natural overflow of my heart as a 16-year-old. And not only did I look for people, I would often find a girl in the class because I knew that I could probably appeal to the compassionate heart of poor little Tyler who didn't get his homework done, and she would help me cheat, so I would pass this quiz. And I did it day after day. So not only is it my own depravity, but I've now asked this person to compromise their morals and to compromise their standards to help me succeed. So this little thing of like cheating on a quiz becomes this thing that points to, oh my goodness, there is something foundationally selfish and wrong and rebellious against the ways of God in my heart. And we can do this with any number of sins. Yes, it's the sins of commission where I violated the commands of God. I mean, I'm lying. I'm putting my name on the top of a piece of paper to say, this is my work when it's not. But then there's also the sins of omission where I should have been the one that was loving people according to the standard of God. I should have been the one that was working hard and being a blessing to those around me. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. It says here that we were following the course of this world. What does this mean? It means that it's a social value system that's alien to God. At what point in life where there's what God says and there's what your friends say. There's what your favorite rock star said. There's what TV said. And which one did you choose? We drifted in the course of this world. 
It's where we were enslaved to. We wanted nothing to do with God, his value system. If, uh, if you were a fortunate one that got saved at a, at a young age and uh, maybe didn't experience a lot of this rebellious or didn't see it real clearly, uh, go back and ask your parents, hey, did you have to teach me how to share or did you have to teach me how to be selfish? I got a two-year-old right now. She's cute. I see God's grace upon her. I love her to death. But I'm telling you, I didn't have to teach her to go, mine! And I want it! We didn't teach her those phrases. They come natural. Hallelujah, they're becoming less frequent. But they come natural. And maybe then, too, consider what you would have done if it wasn't for the common grace of God. I had parents that told me doing drugs was wrong, and I still did drugs. It made me think, I can't imagine if I had parents that endorsed doing drugs or acted like it was not that big of a deal. What if you didn't have that common grace of whoever your guardian or parent was? To at least explain to you what was right and what was wrong. To correct you when you stole. To correct you when you lied. How much more enslaved would you have been? Do you get it? I mean, the trajectory of the heart is towards evil by nature. Think about the common graces of the law, even. This hit me after I became a Christian. I've read passages where Jesus says, you know, you know the law, the the spiritual law. You shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if there's anger in your heart, you've already committed murder. And I totally got it. Man, as an 18-year-old, there was so much anger in my heart. The only thing that kept me from literally not killing people was the thought that there will be a consequence and I do not want to spend the next 35 years to life in prison. It wasn't a fear of God that kept me from being a literal murderer. It was the fear of those consequences. That's what was in my heart. Can you relate? What money would you have stolen if you knew there was not going to be a consequence for it? What would you have done if you knew your wife or your husband would have never found out? It points to the depravity of our heart. It really is this serious. Paul then says we're following the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air is Satan. This is one of those verses that's like, whoa, really? Following Satan? You see, the thing with Satan so often is, is he doesn't show up and knock on the door and say, follow me. Very often his subtle whisper is, follow you. He wants us to sow into that selfish nature that rebels against Jesus as king and pursues our own passions. And desires. His lies and his demonic influence shape us and form us and energize our lives. It's the course of this world. He says that we're living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, these can be unholy desires, right? We know a lot of those, we know which ones we violated. But they can also be natural desires that have been perverted. I believe God puts in us a desire for joy. I believe it's in us, and I believe it's good. 
But as an unbeliever, you say, come and find joy in God? That's ridiculous. Find joy in a fifth of rum? I'll give that a shot. Find joy in my desire for sex outside of God's plan? Yeah, I get that. Submit to him and his ways and believe that that's going to be the path of joy and fulfillment in my sex life? Sounds ridiculous. So not only is it our unholy desires or it's our natural desires that have been perverted, but it's also those consuming desires. You see, when good things become ultimate things, they become very bad things because then you actually have an idol. So God's not against houses and cars and whatever it may be. But then when you start to submit to and live to those things, they become idols and they become very bad things. And rather than leading you to give glory to God and coming underneath that umbrella, it leads back to that selfish ambition, that vain glory, that materialism, that greed. And we see the depravity of our heart. So as we see it painted out here by Paul in verses 1 through 3, we start to understand that with the summary of it all, the ultimate evil It's not just what we've done to each other, as evil and as bad as it is. When we lie, it hurts our neighbor. When we steal, it hurts someone. When we gossip, it hurts someone. When we stab someone in the back, it hurts. When we don't fill our role as a husband or a father or a mother or a daughter, it hurts people. But the, 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 the damage that we do one to the other is still far secondary to what it does vertically to God. It displaces him. It says to him, get away from me. You're not worthy of my life. I want nothing to do with you. I will not delight in you. I will not submit to you. I'm living life my way. It's heavy. That's why verse three ends this way. He says we're by nature Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Whenever I see the wrath of God in Scripture, I'm, I'm forced to ask this question. Is God mean? Is he malicious? Is there something in him that actually delights in pouring out his anger on people? And the answer is no. His wrath is not whimsical, it's not arbitrary, he does not fly off the handle. His wrath is always targeted at one thing, sin and the evil that it produces. And so as we have all these indicators pointing at the depravity and the sinful nature of our heart and the holiness of God gets put forward, we rightly fall under his wrath, his indignation, his righteous anger. Consider this with me for a minute. If the Bible ended there, would God have done anything wrong? 
When a murderer stands on trial and has been proven guilty and he receives his jail sentence, does anyone scream out, that's unfair? We don't. Because he simply got what he deserved. And so if the Bible... A holy God with indignation towards sin made the message of Scripture, I love you, I created you, you rebelled against me, my wrath is coming. Would he have done anything wrong? And the answer is no. We're hopeless and helpless before a holy God. Jesus said that's why in the last days when his wrath comes and people realize his holiness and they never repented before him, they will see his glory, they will see his wrath, and they will be terrified, and they will say, please, let rocks crush me so I don't have to face him with my sin that's inside of me. It's terrifying. How do you run from an infinitely powerful God? How do you make excuses for all the wrong that you've done? You can't. It's heavy. It's terrifying. And it's why the first word of verse 4 brings the thrill of hope. Verse 4 says, but... Man, if we grasp verses 1 through 3, then when verse 4 comes and there's a but, our ears perk up, our eyes light up, and we say, but what? Please tell me, but what? But God, but God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So what are you telling me about this God? That there's not only holiness, there's not only judgment? What else is true of him? And the passage says he's merciful. He doesn't give people what they deserve. He could have taken his hands back and said, you rebelled. There you go. But there's mercy in his heart and says, I don't want that for him. I don't want that for him. I don't want to give him what they deserve. And he's rich in mercy. There's not just a little bit of mercy. There's an abundance of mercy. There's waves of mercy. There's an ocean of mercy. And so this merciful God moves forward in the gospel towards us. The question then becomes why? Why would he do it? What's his motive? This is awesome. He says, Because of the great love with which he loved us. Do you get that today? That this gospel, that this baby in a manger is because the heart of God beats for us. He wanted to make a way back to himself. He said, I got to have you back. I want you back. I love you. I'm coming after you. I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. And his heart swells with affection. Says that even when we're dead and our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. All that verse 1 through 3 is past tense. And he says, you're no longer enslaved. Come to life. And he says, it's by grace that all this comes. It's by grace you have been saved. Verse 5. What is grace? 
the unmerited favor of God. It's a gift. It's a gift to be received by faith. We can't earn it. Something this glorious, something this good, you can't work for it. You can't merit it. We've merited the exact opposite. And that's why it's a gift of grace. Not only does he have mercy in not giving us what we do deserve, but his grace comes in and gives us far more than we could ever imagine. Do you remember last week, Ephesians chapter 1, it says his grace has been lavished on us. It says that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to us in Christ Jesus. He does not remove us simply from this place of wrath, this place of sin to some point of neutrality. He says, you were a rebel, now you're my son. And instead of staring at my judgment, you get to sit in the lap of your papa. You're forgiven, you're adopted, you're clean, you're holy, you're raised in newness of life because of Jesus and what he did on your behalf. Come, step into it. By grace, you have been saved. He talks about this grace in verse 8 as being a gift. It is the gift of God. Christmas is right around the corner, and so let's just take a minute to consider what makes a gift good. Now, I got to be careful here. This is being recorded, and I don't know who has access. I guess everybody has access to it. I got to make sure certain people don't. But, you know, a gift, <laughs> two things make a gift really good. There's probably more, but these are the two things that come to mind for me. One, the joy it brings to the recipient. And two, the price paid or the sacrifice made in order to give it. For example, I was 12 years old and uh, we were going to Christmas at grandma's house. And as a 12 year old should be, I cannot wait to open my presents and see what my family members got me, right? Well, there was this one year and I will forever remember it. Uh, we got a gift from uh, one uncle, and it was a brown <laughs> lunch bag kind of thing with some peanuts inside. And uh, now I've already talked to you about the, all the depravity going on in my heart, but this is still a bad gift, even with a redeemed heart, you know. So anyhow, I get this bag of peanuts, and I'm like, as a 12-year-old, I fake as much excitement and joy as I can. Thank you. I'm right. I was hoping I would get some salted peanuts. Um, and, uh, and then he proceeds to say, hey, on behalf of the cousins, we adopted, I think it was a llama or a goat or something. We adopted a llama at the local petting zoo, and we're going to feed that llama for the next year in honor of our family. And on, as a token, we got y'all a bag of peanuts. Terrible gift, right? It brought no joy to a 12-year-old little boy. Like, I'm like... What? Like, you're my richest uncle. This is a good, oh my goodness. So it's a bad gift. It didn't bring much joy. Husbands, right? Christmas is coming. Don't buy your wife something that you would like. Think in terms of her, amen, women, and buy something that she would enjoy. That's a part of giving a good gift. Friends, it works that way as well. Just, I'm telling you, it's the joy that it brings to the other person. And second, it, it's the price paid for it to attain it or the sacrifice made. When I think about the best gifts I've received, I really do think of things that 
Um, now, my wife has a pass this year. She just gave birth. Uh, we have a newborn, one month old, so she's got a pass this year. But in, in years past, on birthday, Christmas, these kind of things, um, it's not uncommon for me to open a gift and realize that not only has my wife invested money and greatly considered what would be a blessing to me, but that she's put in a lot of time actually physically making something. And man, those are my favorite gifts. They melt my heart. I like weep when I receive them. It's awesome. And so these are the things that, 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 that come. It's, it's the joy that it gives to the recipient. And it's the price that's paid to attain it. Now hold that in your mind as we go to verses 6 through 8. And we'll, we'll bring it back in here in just a minute. It says in verse 5, it ends, By grace you have been saved. And it says in verse 6 that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is so glorious. Let me try to put it into words. First, he raised us up with him. That resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead, when the grace of God comes upon our lives, it is, when we're born again, it is activated in us. And that enslavement to the world and that enslavement to the enemy is gone. And we're raised in newness of life. But it gets better. We're then seated with Christ. Our position becomes in Christ, in the heavenly places. We're seated in him. I'd love to preach a whole message on that, but that's not today. We, 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 we become partakers of the divine. We, we share in his authority. Our, our, our eternity is set. I mean, it's, this is awesome. It's glorious. We've been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. But then there's a purpose statement in verse 7. He says, so that in the coming ages, that's heaven, that's eternal life, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, let's try to get an idea of what's being said here. Um, think about something on this earth that you've seen that's just beautiful, awe-inspiring, takes your breath away. Uh, for me, most of y'all know, my wife's immediate family lives in Switzerland. And I remember the first time that we arrived in a, in a, on, on a clear morning into Switzerland. And the, and the plane had to go over top the Alps. And we got a bird's eye view out the window of the Swiss Alps. And I mean, it's, it was awesome. It was awe-inspiring, truly majestic. You, you don't look out and think, oh, wow, I am awesome. You think, wow, you totally forget yourself. It's a beautiful thing. Um, maybe close to home, maybe, maybe more people have had this experience, but maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon. I remember going, and um, yeah, man, the first time you see the Grand Canyon, right? You step out there to the edge, and you look out, and it's this big, massive, huge thing, and it's just, it's awesome. It's awe-inspiring. But then this thing happens, and you look at it for like 25 minutes, and then you're like, all right. You want to go eat lunch? <laughs> like, what's next, you know? It's not to diminish. Go do it. It's awesome. But then maybe you go to another little part, and you're inspired again, and wow, that's beautiful. And then it's the same thing. How long does it last? I don't know. Look at it for about 20 minutes, and you're done. Consider then with me that the glory of God is not this way for all of eternity. 
The passage says that in the ages to come, he's going to show the immeasurable riches of his grace towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, theologians called it the principle of divine increase. And what they were getting at is that God is infinite and he always stays infinite. And so when we as finite beings step into eternity, this wave of glory hits us that's more beautiful than anything we've ever seen. But the crazy thing that happens is that the next day in eternity, we're not like, okay, what's next? We're like, oh my goodness, it's more immeasurable. It's more rich. There's more kindness. There's more grace. There's more glory than there was yesterday. And then a week later, it's like, oh my goodness, there's still more glory to be had. And a month later, oh my goodness, he's still beautiful. He's still glorious. He's still awesome. And year after year after year after year, we never exhaust the beauty and the glory of God. It's, it's unthinkable. It's unfathomable. And this is what he's purchased for us. So what is this gift of salvation? What's the joy that it brings to the recipient? Eternal intoxication, ecstasy, awe of who he is in glory forever and ever. There's no gift like it. There's no gift like it. And what is the price that's been paid so that you and I can have it. The very death of his son. Jesus was born that man no more may die. He bled and was crucified on the cross to bear all the indignation that we deserved for us so that we might know freedom and joy for eternity. There's no gift like it. There's no gift that compares to it. No joy has ever been brought that compares to it and no price could ever be paid that compares to it. And he did it all for us because he's rich in mercy and because of his great love with which he loved us. Verse 9, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This salvation equation, what did we bring to it? We brought verses 1 through 3. We're the only reasons it's necessary. What did God bring to it? Verses 4 through 9. The mercy, the grace, the love, the new life, the eternal life, the joy with him for all eternity. Where then is our boasting? Only in the cross of Christ. Only in the perfect life. Virgin birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. All glory is due his name. And so as we look today, let us be like that immoral woman. Let us realize our sin. Let us be broken over it. But then let us weep and rejoice at the Savior's feet who declares saved, who stamps mercy, who declares forgiven, 
who declares life and life eternal over us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you are awesome. (laughs) We love you. You made a way back to the Father. You made a way. You gave us life. We love you, Lord. Because you first loved us, you came after us. And so that's what we celebrate this Christmas. And that's what we ultimately give for this Thanksgiving. We say thank you. We say hallelujah. And we praise you. And so, God, I pray for each person here. Would you stir our affections as we take communion? Would you stir our hearts as we sing? Would these truths sink deep down in us? And, Lord, if there's anybody here today, and they know that the wrath of God remains over their life, Oh, God, let them hear the loving voice of Jesus saying, come, have life, have freedom. And God, let them lay hold of you by faith. Thank you, God, for your goodness. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.